Again, I want to say good morning and welcome Santa Barbara Community Church. It is good to be together. My name is Benji. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I want to talk about 1989. Not the Taylor Swift album. Um, I know, sadly. Um, But the year that I started sixth grade... The very first day of sixth grade. How many of you remember the very first day of sixth grade? It's fine if you don't. Yeah, a few of you. Um, I remember it really vividly. (laughs) I hope that's not the last amen I get from you, John, because that would be a sad trajectory for the sermon. But um, I remember the opening minutes, to be really clear. I remember the opening minutes of the first day of sixth grade with vivid clarity. So that summer, the summer before sixth grade, my parents decided that I would change schools for the final year of my elementary education. And um, I wasn't particularly heartbroken about it because I wasn't exactly crushing it at my previous school. And so what I do remember, however, as you might imagine, was um, being very nervous about dropping into a new social scene for sixth grade. I was worried about not fitting in. I was quite concerned about the first impression I would make, which looking back now is pretty ironic given how the day started out. So I walked into my sixth grade classroom on the first day of the school year and I was greeted by Mrs. Hopperstad, which is a fantastic last name. She had been my older sister's teacher and my parents knew she was a good teacher, a kind teacher, and none of that mattered to my insecure 11-year-old self. So I walked in, and when I noticed that there were a few other students already in the room, my urgency to create a significant first impression just shot through the roof. So you can imagine the scene. Mrs. Hopperstad kindly greets me, says, good morning, and she directs me toward a cluster of desks near the front, one of which had my name on it. And I instead walked to the back of the room, pulled out a chair at a classroom work table, and sat down and said, nah, I'm good here. Mm-mm, mm-mm. And I set my backpack down, and I sat there, and I gave off a whole vibe. Now, to be clear, I had succeeded in making a first impression, um, but it was probably not the one that I imagined or the one that I would want to make today. We're going to return to that story over and over for the next number of minutes. For, for decades, Santa Barbara Community Church has begun each year by intentionally focusing on three themes over the course of the first three Sundays of January. We have given attention to the themes of the glory of God, ethnic justice, and the sanctity of life. This year, however, as Mike mentioned last week, we want to utilize these three weeks somewhat differently and give some specific focus to prayer. Now, if you happen to miss last week's teaching, I highly recommend go track it down on, through the app or on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Mike gave us a really wonderful teaching on Jesus's words in Luke 11, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And today we're going to do something similar, actually. We're going to look at more of Jesus's teaching from a different part of the Gospel of Luke and explore another aspect of prayer. So if you have your Bible, would you open it to Luke chapter 18, please? Luke is one of four books in the New Testament that we call Gospels, which literally means good news. Now, these books are called Gospels because they relay the good news of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God breaking into the world, both through Jesus' ministry of compassion and miracles and teaching, as well as 
through his substitutionary death and triumphant victory over the grave. Now, a regular feature of the Gospels was the storytelling device known as a parable. Parables are stories that are meant to convey spiritual truth. And typically, Jesus doesn't do a ton of unpacking or explaining. More often, he tells a a poetic, fairly cryptic story and then says something like, whoever has ears, let them hear, which is kind of the first century equivalent of tagging your social media post with IYKYK. And if you need me to explain that, it would ruin the imagery of IYKYK, but we can do it later. In Luke 18.1, however, Jesus does something different. And we read these words. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up, which is interesting. We don't normally get that kind of insight into why Jesus tells a parable, at least not on the front end. And given that we're doing a three-week series on the necessity of prayer and the value of persisting in it, you would be right to expect that any really good preacher would be instantly drawn to this parable but you have me instead. And I'm not drawn to that parable. I'm drawn to the one that comes later in the chapter. So if you are in Luke 18, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may return to your seats. Well, if you've read the Gospels much, you've surely encountered the Pharisees before. This group of religious conservatives, they were intent on living faithfully to the law as well as to a particular interpretation and a tradition around the law that was meant to keep individuals as far as possible from even the potential of sin. And it is hard for many of us to wrap our minds around this today because of how the Pharisees interact with Jesus and the Gospels. But in the day, the Pharisees were most likely seen as a religious example worthy of following. They loved the scriptures. They labored for lives of personal holiness as they understood it. And now culturally, there couldn't have been a more polar opposite than the tax collector. We don't have many contemporary parallels for the way that first century Jews felt about tax collectors. Tax collectors worked for Rome, and they made their personal living by adding on to the taxes required meaning that every time a tax collector showed up, you would be reminded of multiple things. You would be reminded that you belonged to an occupied nation. You would be reminded that your overlords in Rome were content with your exploitation so long as they didn't have to get directly involved. You would, remind, you would be reminded that your voice mattered very little and that the position of tax collector was almost universally held by fellow Jews. It only furthered the hatred So while I don't see many of us writing rave reviews of the IRS on Nextdoor or anything like that, 
this is a whole different ball game. In the setting of the day, then, when Jesus begins his story with the words, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, those listening likely thought, ah, here we have a clear hero and a clear villain. And then the Pharisee starts to speak. Now, I have been susceptible to profound bouts of foot and mouth disease, so a part of me can identify with the guy. And yet, even I am savvy enough to know not to begin any public prayers with something like, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. (laughs) And having already said too much, the Pharisee continues to say still more, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This is cringy, isn't it? Yet according to the external righteousness scorecard that was so familiar to the Pharisees, this prayer actually makes a ton of sense. This is an individual who had labored to be able to say these kinds of things, and he wants everyone to know it. And then enter the figure collectively assumed by all of Jesus' listeners to be the unquestioned villain in the story, the tax collector, who the text tells us stood at a distance and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, I recognize that this kind of prayer sits like oil on so much of the self-actualization and self-affirmation waters that we swim in. But you'll notice there's nothing overly grandiose in this confession. In fact, we get other biblical examples of much more intense self-flagellation So for example, in Psalm 22, David assesses his life with these words, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. In the New Testament, specifically in response to his own sin, the Apostle Paul says these sorts of things, what a wretched man I am, in Romans 7. 1 Timothy 1 declares himself the worst of sinners, and in 1 Corinthians 15, he claims, I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. In comparison to Paul and David, who sound like they could have used a little sit-down with Stuart Smalley at times, the tax collector, on the other hand, he just comes across as baseline honest in this text. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we have to see that such honesty is actually the whole point of the setting that Jesus gives for this story. Now, Jesus is a master storyteller. He could have set this particular story in any location. Most of his parables take place in the common everyday settings of first century life in Palestine. So fields and homes and fishing. Now, as far as I'm able to determine, this is the only time in the Gospels that a parable is set in the temple. And while the temple was associated with many things, its primary function was to bring about reconciliation between God and people. So the story's climactic moment comes in verse 14. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. The ultimate reason anyone went to the temple in the first place was to secure justification. And Jesus' story claims that it was not the well-regarded and externally righteous Pharisee, but the despised yet honest tax collector who experienced the forgiveness his soul longed for. 
Church, the resounding point of Jesus' parable is this. Honest confession is the doorway to experiencing the grace of God. You should know, in the spirit of honest confession, I don't really like this point. Because I don't really like confession. I deeply prefer to so have my stuff together that I have no need for a confession. And when I inevitably demonstrate that I don't have it all together, like an insecure sixth grade boy, I'm still prone to posture and pretend rather than admit what's really going on in and through me. And I suspect I'm not alone in that. But fam, apart from honest confession, we miss out on the only thing that will truly satisfy our souls. And that's a satisfaction we need not just as individuals, but also as a group of people. Can you turn in your Bible to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be. It's just a little before the Psalms. Feel free to use that table of contents if you need to. Nehemiah is a part of the history books that tell the story of Israel. You may remember that unfaithfulness to God's love and God's law led to the exile, a period of almost 70 years during which the Jewish people lived in Babylon as a punishment for their sins. Now, near the end of that time, the people were granted the chance to return to Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah centers on that return and specifically focuses on the efforts to rebuild Jerusalem's protective city wall. And once the wall is completed, there are a series of celebrations of the kind you'd expect, with singing and food, probably bounce houses, food trucks, pinatas. I mean, there are reasons to celebrate, and these people get down in the book of Nehemiah. It's really, really fun. Until we get to Nehemiah 9, when the mood changes, would you look at verse 1? The chapter opens this way. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. In ancient Israel, fasting and sackcloth and dust, these were the signs of repentance and even grief. This is quite a response to the Lord's deliverance from exile and his protection in helping them to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. And yet the remainder of the chapter follows this pattern. The Israelites rehearsed both God's glorious character and their unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of their ancestors. So while verses 5 through 15, for example, extol God's gracious character, his protection and provision of the Israelites, would you look at verse 16? But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. And in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. And then another recitation of God's goodness and generosity in verses 19 through 25. But then we come to verse 26. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. 
They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. Back and forth, it goes throughout the chapter. God shows his people grace and provision. They relish it, but later turn to unfaithful compromise. He judges them for their sin and they cry out for mercy. God shows his people grace and provision. They relish it, but later return to unfaithful compromise. It just goes on and on as though playing on a loop. But something fascinating happens in verse 32. Let's read from there through the end of the passage. The people say, Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all of this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So, real talk for just a moment. This isn't a particularly Western sentiment, which is fine when we maintain the wherewithal to remember that this isn't a Western book and we don't follow a Western savior. But admittedly, we have trouble with things like collective confession because each of us lives and moves and has our being in an individualistic society. And in such a society, one can only be morally responsible for their own specific actions and intentions, not for the actions or intentions of any group to which that individual might belong. And any talk of the collective kindles all kinds of Cold War-era suspicions. Yet here, in the sacred pages of Israel's ancient history, we see something other than the air that we breathe. We see God's people effortlessly switch from they to we, from their to our. Verse 26 says, they were disobedient and they rebelled. And verse 33 says, we acted wickedly. Verse 29 says, they sinned against your ordinances. And in verse 37, the people claim that they are in distress because of our sins. On a Sunday, when we would traditionally talk about racial reconciliation or the sanctity of life, on a weekend when we prepare to take a national pause tomorrow to remember the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we have to name that sometimes individual confession is only the beginning of a healing journey. Sometimes corporate confession is the only warranted response to not just instances of sin, but systems and patterns of sin. And if this makes us nervous, I submit that we may yet have something to learn about the nature of sin and the grace of God from our spiritual ancestors. The scriptures consistently paint a picture of a God that we can be honest with. So for example, Psalm 103 declares, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, 
nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Last week in the passage that Mike taught through, Mike reminded us that Jesus described God as a kind father who responds to his children with lavish generosity. And yet, despite these stunning descriptions, far too often it seems that for many of us, our impulse is still to withdraw and say, nah, I'm I'm good over here. Rather than honestly confess and experience what our souls most deeply long for. And we have to see that the alternative to confession is more than simple hiding, though. It's deception and ultimately destruction. In Psalm 32, David describes the oppressiveness of sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And the Apostle John adds, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And here's the kicker. Our need for confession is not only vertical, but also horizontal. A community of people who have known the freedom brought about by honest confession to God will increasingly be a community of people who know the joy of restored relationships through honest confession with one another. In fact, the book of James goes so far as to claim this, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So I will say again what my heart and maybe yours also needs to believe more and more. Honest confession is the doorway to experiencing the grace of God. And this is true not only for individuals, but also for any collection of saints who are still prone to sin. For the person of God or the people of God alike, honest confession is the doorway to experiencing the grace of God. I recently finished reading Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools by Tyler Staten, and he wrote this about confession. The desperate need of our time is not for successful Christians, popular Christians, or winsome Christians. It's for deep Christians. And the only way to become a deep Christian is through the inner excavation called confession. The pathway of spiritual maturity is a descent, not an ascent. A maturing community is a confessing community, not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. When we come in and out of God's presence in gathered communities with our deepest needs and secrets hidden, we are essentially saying Jesus' victory is not enough. It's not enough for me. Not enough for this. I just need more time. I can sort this out on my own. How do we combat the insistent internal narrative that was planted in us at the fall that keeps us in a perpetual state of hiding and dressing ourselves up with our choice fig leaves? Confession. We say we believe in grace, but confession is how we actually trust what we already believe in. I think he's right. And I want to ask us, church, what might happen in our midst? 
if we became more and more a church where it's okay to admit that we're not okay, both individually and corporately, if we together stopped putting on a show and stopped expecting it of one another, if we instead embraced the kind of confession, forgiveness-seeking, and healing that can only be possible in a context marked by authentic honesty, if we courageously named what we know to be true about ourselves and our people so that we can lay claim of what we know to be true about God, I have a suspicion that should we dare our hearts to live by what we claim with our mouths, that we belong to a merciful, forgiving, kind, and patient God, that we would increasingly become a community where the scandalous grace of God gets its glorious due from a people who refuse to cover over their brokenness and neediness. And fam, you need to know that this teaching makes me so uncomfortable. I don't stand before you and deliver this teaching as one who has arrived when it comes to honest confession and forgiveness seeking. And I wish I could tell you that all of my securities in life stayed planted at a work table in the back of a sixth grade classroom, Park Lane Elementary School. But the truth is, I still carry that same 11-year-old around in my 45-year-old self, and he appears far more regularly than I'd care to admit. I can think of times even this week as I was preparing this teaching, ironically, that I found myself covering up. And because of that, I have missed out on both the opportunity to seek forgiveness through honest confession and the opportunity to name my own hurts and extend grace in hopes of true relational repair. But I am working to choose the voice of Jesus over my inner voice of self-protection to learn to pray like the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. To be honest in prayer with God about what I know to be true about myself. I am working to choose the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus that even from the agony of the cross still cried out, Father, forgive them. Because the cross is the greatest reminder that our God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Which means that week by week, when those who are a part of the family of God by faith in Jesus come to this table, we dare to tell again a story of shocking forgiveness. And we dare to ask God to make us more and more into a people who believe that story deeply enough to live by it, both with him and with one another. Our worship team is going to come up, but I want to urge us, as we come to the table in a moment, don't rush it seems appropriate. Spend time in honest confession, naming to God what you know to be true of yourself. Name the ways that you have not lived for his kingdom and his glory this week. Name the sins that you have indulged. Name the instances of opting for comfort over courageous faithfulness. Name your hiding from grace and your withholding of grace. We do this not as a method of self-injury, but we do this as a method of magnifying the grace of God and laying claim to what Scripture declares to be true about him. I also want to say I know that in a room of this many people who are endeavoring to live like spiritual family together, there will be ample opportunities to honestly confess the ways that we have wounded one another and plenty of opportunities to extend grace and relational healing to those courageous enough to honestly confess. Maybe you need to spend a little time before you come to the table asking the Spirit for the courage you need to initiate that conversation of confession with someone across the room. I recognize that a teaching like this 
has potential to stir up so many emotions, maybe even hurt, possibly even anger for the ways that we have not always lived out our claims. As always, our prayer teams would love to hear your heart and pray with you and for you. We'll have prayer teams on either side as well as in the back. Let me pray for us. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And would you have mercy on us, a collection of people who you love deeply, who have not always lived out of that love. God, would you give us the courage to become increasingly people who know the power of prayers of confession? And would it motivate us to a different way of life so that we no longer hide from you, no longer hide from one another, but know the joy of the restoration that Jesus died to bring? Work in us by your spirit what looks like your kingdom. We ask these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.